Hi there, Joanna again, and welcome back to the Relentless Podcast. I wanted to talk about taking the time to honor yourself. So here we are at episode two. I'm just going to go ahead and go over the survivor's toolbox again. That's one, taking a moment to honor yourself. Two, finding and making a safe space. Three, acknowledging and respecting where you are in this journey now. Four, understanding what pace to take. Five, removing the excess baggage in your life. Six, allowing yourself a support system. Seven, understanding how to nurture yourself. And eight, knowing what to expect. And today, we're going to go through the first tool. And this, I think, might arguably be one of the most difficult ones. And um, to be honest, I think I've probably recorded this episode maybe like two different times and um, I just felt like I could not, I could not do it justice. I interviewed and I had a conversation with my um, very close friend, Jeanette, um, who was studying to get her master's degree to become a therapist. And um, to go over through the, uh, to go over and talk about the different things that I don't think I am the most well versed at, and so while we won't be talking about all of these things together, um, there will be some parts where she will be putting um, where she will be including some of her input. And so, as a disclaimer, this is not a replacement for therapy. I highly, highly recommend anyone um, who has not yet found the right therapist or who has not tried just yet um, to find to find professional help. Um, it is so helpful. I have just went through this uh, this tool with myself and for myself uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago, just sharing my story. So I found that I needed. I needed that extra help to process some things, and I am so glad that I did, um, and I highly recommend it for anyone else, okay? And so just a friendly reminder that this is your journey. Take this at your own pace so you can stop and pause when you need to, and this will always be here for you, okay? And so um, diving right back into the survivor's, survivor's toolbox, and while all of these different eight tools might be difficult to have under your belt, just knowing all of them gives gives us something to work toward, okay? And so let's talk about honoring yourself. So similar to what we did in the first episode, this is a moment to acknowledge. We're just going to sit here together and take account of all the different things that we had to do. And so this Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu said, knowing others is an intelligence, knowing yourself is true wisdom, mastering others is strength, and mastering yourself is true power. And it's such a loaded quote, but I think it illustrates a very important point. Before we can improve our lives, we must understand what we're working with. And uh, I think that's just the pinnacle of any type of change. You have to understand where your baseline is, what is happening right now. And a lot of change takes being honest with yourself then and there. It's, it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, and you'll find that uh, every now and then uh, that you'll, you'll have new insight to what you have done to cope, what you have done to survive, and that's okay. It's all completely normal. Okay, so if hearing any of these things makes you feel upset, 
or sad or you feel triggered in any way or overwhelmed, just let yourself feel that for a moment. Take a step back and just notice. I think that is one of the most important things to do in all of this. And so I will be using two different sources here. Um, the first one is The Courage to Heal by Ellen Bass and Laura Davies. And I will also be using an online resource called race.org. That's R-A-A-C-E.org. And before we dive into all of this, there are a lot of uh, common themes between both of them. And uh, what I found with The Courage to Heal is that there are some terminologies or some phrasings that I don't necessarily completely agree with. This was written um, a little bit <laughs> earlier. I don't want to say that it's super old and that it's not relevant because it is very relevant and there are definitely some stories and firsthand experiences shared by very brave survivors that are very valuable. But um, I will be discussing some of that um, with Jeanette later. Okay, and so let me go ahead and introduce to you um, one of my closest and dearest friends, uh, Jeanette. I call her my soul sister. I grew up with her since the third grade, but I am going to go ahead and let her introduce herself. So my name is Jeanette. Um, I live in in Joanna's old hometown. Um, uh, I'm still here. Same bedroom we used to live in together. I am currently a graduate student at San Jose State University, um, majoring in um, Master's of Science for Clinical Psychology. Right now, I am working on my practicum at Aki. It's uh, Asian Americans for Community Involvement. Uh, I am not Asian American. I identify as Latinx and Chicana or Chicanex. And um, I am bilingual English and Spanish speaker, so I provide services in both languages. Uh, the practicum I'm doing at, my, at Aki is um, therapy, uh, doing therapy with clients. Currently, I'm in the family and children's program, so I am doing therapy on uh, children and adolescents and uh, with their families, which is really amazing and really incredible. Absolutely adore my clients. I'm also I'm involved in a lot of things. I'm also currently the director of the 2020 undergraduate fellowship for uh, the Genesis Healing Institute, uh, which is an organization I'm involved in. And it's essentially a summer program where we talk about um, different aspects of psychology that is not covered in undergraduate studies, um, rather um, in more master's level classes, such as intergenerational trauma, economic and political suffering, um, racial and ethnic suffering, um, gender discrimination, um, and uh, uh, sexual suffering as well, as well as a more holistic type things or general things. I am a wife. Uh, I'm an older sister. Back to more personal stuff. My parents used to be undocumented uh, while I was growing up, which caused a lot of stress uh, and a lot of anxiety, uh, probably some depression um, that all went undiagnosed because having to stay under the radar. Um, so I fight. I'm very, very politically active, I want to say, in um, uh like I'm a social justice warrior, I'm a hardcore feminist because I really, really believe in standing up for the rights of other people who are silenced uh, politically and institutionally and cannot speak up for themselves, such as the undocumented community or the community of um, people of color. I, what am I passionate about? I'm passionate about helping other people. I'm passionate about um, fairness, or not fairness, but um, equal opportunities or providing opportunities for people that are disenfranchised. Um, I am passionate about about healing and about 
finding ways to heal yourself and others. And I find that going through this journey of seeking ways to help others heal is in and of itself a way to heal my own pains and sufferings and a way for me to process uh, events that have happened in my life as well um, and to make right things that have happened. And with that, I will jump into the eight different coping mechanisms that the courage to heal uh, includes. And these are coping mechanisms that we may have used during the trauma. And these are also the coping mechanisms that we may have brought uh, brought in other parts of our lives. And it starts with um, number one, denial. And the denial is turning your head the other way and pretending that whatever is happening isn't or that what has happened didn't. It's also important to note that this can also mean the denial of the effects of the particular event or events. Um, This is a basic pattern in alcoholic families. This is almost always common with incest. And it's the quote, if I just ignore it long enough, it will go away, quote. Um, Another thing, that they mention is minimizing. So the pretending that whatever happened really wasn't that bad. And so sometimes this can be seen uh, as normalizing what isn't supposed to happen, and it can be helpful in the short term, but in the same way that denial does, minimizing can prevent us from confronting trauma in a very healthy way. So the fourth one is forgetting. It's important to note that the brain has a tremendous capacity to protect us from Uh, truths or things that have happened that are too painful for us to to bear. Um, The book mentions that many children begin blocking out the abuse even as it's happening to them. However, survivors can also remember the abuse but forget the way they feel at that very moment. The fifth one is presenting a facade to the world and this is covering our real feelings with acceptable with a, with an acceptable facade or making it seem like everything is okay to everyone else even when everything isn't okay and i think many of us had used that as a coping mechanism and may have even continued this into adulthood and this can be very misleading for loved ones and very isolating for um, those of us who are still enraged and are in a tremendous amount of pain um, just trying to uh, process it the sixth one is humor and humor, while it is not damaging to the, the survivor or the people around them, it helps the survivor maintain a protective distance from what had happened. The downside to humor, although it is um, not harmful to the survivor, is that it can prevent us from confronting the trauma um, in a healthy way. However, um, it's in- important to clue- include that it's, it's basically a fairly harmless way of coping with what had happened to us. And if, if, if it is a coping mechanism that helps you, I am not one to say don't use it, but to just keep in mind that it can prevent us from truly experiencing the feelings to process what had happened to us and how how that's affected us afterwards. Number seven is dissociation and that is best described as a disconnection from your body. The severe version of this is dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder. 
And the book does include that finding out about the existence of this might be shocking, but it's important to remember that it has enabled you to survive extreme trauma. And while I'm not the expert at um, multiple personality disorder, I thought it was important to go ahead and include that as a sub-bullet underneath dissociation. The eighth one they mentioned was spacing out. So distancing yourself from what is happening by fixating on something very specific. And while this can help uh, you and I to prevent ourselves from feeling pain, this can also cause us to miss the richness of life and human connection as well. And if you are working or at school, sometimes spacing out can be very disruptive. What I've noticed among all of these coping mechanisms is that while I don't always use them now, I do notice that I have a tendency to use them when I am in, in distress. And this is this is 15 years after the abuse. And so don't beat yourself up for having dealing with this still because I still feel echoes of it. I still I still deal with this um, from time to time. Um, it's getting better, much better than it ever has been, but you'll notice that with the right type of healing, with, with the proper support system, it will happen less and less over the years. The Courage to Heal also includes three different strategies that you might have used to protect yourself. And the first strategy is avoiding people. The second, was a, the second one is avoiding intimacy. And the third one is avoiding sex. And what they do say about avoidance of people is that um, by avoiding people, we may protect ourselves from any sort of disappointment or harm, but it inevitably leads to a feeling of isolation or feeling damaged, unlovable, undeserving of kindness, love, or concern. And this avoidance of people um, may, may cause you or me to never learn how to reach out or initiate a conversation or even establish a connection with others. And so avoiding, while avoiding people might have been a, a maladaptive coping mechanism, um, human contact is a basic need for people. The avoiding of intimacy is the avoidance of any sort of real depth to a relationships. And some of us go to great lengths to limit the amount of intimacy in our friendships or our romantic relationships. And um, a personal example um, is uh, during my dating life, um, I... Uh, noticed that I would have relationships with people in college, but I never really allowed myself to be vulnerable with them. And um, almost most of them didn't know what I was going through. Um, or if I did, I did not, uh, I, I went through great lengths to make sure that they did not see me at my worst. And if they did, it was really bad. Uh, this really did prevent any of my romantic relationships from having any real depth um, and I felt very isolated, very alone um, in, in, in the battles that I, I dealt with every day. Avoiding sex. So some of us go to great lengths to avoid sexual contact and some of us numb our bodies so that um, we no longer respond to contact and this this is a struggle for many survivors of um, sexual abuse. The book also includes 
descriptions about different ways that we might have tried to maintain control in our lives. And it's important to note that um, while I will be using some of their verbiage, um, Jeanette and I will be discussing kind of the different ways that we disagree with the verbiage that they use. Um, they, they use terms that we call in the medical field uh, layman's terms. So, for example, heartburn, <laughs> calling heartburn heartburn but when in actuality it has nothing to do with the heart it actually has to do with um, the regurgitation of acids in our stomach up into the esophagus and so the book will use layman's terms for different um, coping mechanisms um, that we might have used and Jeanette and I will go ahead and discuss that but the first the first one that they do include or the first one that they describe is hypervigilance so that's being attuned to every detail of our environment that might have saved us from being abused at the time and this can definitely be brought out um, into adulthood or into our older years um, we might feel the need to be hyper aware of people anticipating their needs or their moods or even being hyper-vigilant or hyper-aware of our surroundings um, because at one time it, it, was, it was a way to reduce our chances of being surprised um, with any type of harm. Now, while it is a very effective protective mechanism, hyper-vigilance can, can prevent you and me from being able to truly relax. And this is something that I still struggle with and I am learning to cope with with different types of practices and meditation and mindfulness, which Jeanette and I will go ahead and just uh, chat about for a little bit. The second one is what the book calls as, quote, creating chaos, unquote. Um, but Jeanette does describe it as uh, a way to regain power by disempowering others. She'll go ahead and talk that over with me. In just a second um i think unhelpful coping would be okay um because it, it's just how they've learned to cope um it's it is coping technically it's just not uh helpful um in in like their whole kind of like li uh, life functioning it's actually causing more harm but it's helping them cope with it's like helping them put out the fire but like you are endangering something else in doing so. I'm super glad that you said that because um, this there are some things in this book that when I when I say the book, the courage to heal, there are some verbiage that they use that I kind of disagree with and that makes kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. And so when I read that, that's kind of how I felt. I just didn't know how to verbalize it. <laughs> I, and so I, I don't this I think what they're trying to do is call it in layman's terms. I guess yeah. describe things in women's terms, which is which is helpful some, for for some, but then again for others because it's so generalized, it's it, it almost doesn't do a, the correct job to convey what they're trying to say, um, mostly because it stigmatizes further by oh, having sure. it be in layman's terms, which is just really unfortunate. Oh no, I I completely agree. So I guess how would you 
how would you reframe that? And how would you rephrase that? Personally, I see this more as a struggle in power rather than I see it as creating chaos. Because I again, like I said, chaos, saying someone's creating chaos is like very stigmatizing, kind of like, why are you doing this to us? Or, and it puts the, the blame on the individual who's seeking to regain some sort of power when they've had their power, at least in this context, right? They've had their right. power stripped from them and they don't know how to reclaim their power. So, and th- from what they've experienced, they know that disempowering others is a way to regain some power. Um, when in reality that just creates um disempowerment in other people and creates more pain and then I guess in doing so could be called chaos but again I don't I don't use I don't use that terminology with clients Um, yeah no I I I can definitely see why you wouldn't and I'm really glad that you that you had re-clarified that and re-reframe that because um I like that I I I like that much better than how it was worded in the book the book is helpful in many ways because it's super comprehensive, um, but I think that there is some verbiage in there that I don't quite completely agree with. And so that was the conversation between me and Jeanette about um, what the courage to heal called creating chaos. Um, but just like Jeanette had said, creating chaos is not the best terminology and it's definitely not the, the best phrase to use. And she later reclarified that and we labeled that as the regaining of power by disempowerment of others. And the third way that we may have fought to maintain control in our lives is what the courage to heal calls safety at any price. And really what that is, is sacrificing uh, this the sacrificing of our happiness for the decisions that are secure and predictable um but not necessarily but do not necessarily um feed into the joy and into the enrichment of our lives and that can be shown in the friendships that we choose that can be shown in the romantic relationships that we have in our lives and um even the career choices that we make Sometimes you might choose the job that is um, the most safe, um, for example, um, but does not necessarily make us happy. The fourth way that we may have fought to maintain control in our lives, according to The Courage to Heal, is seeking safety in religion. And they go into detail about that. And I don't think religion is bad whatsoever. I think that if your faith is something that um, brings fulfillment in your life, um, that it uh, gives you strength in your life, I think that's wonderful. I think that's something that's valuable. And I think that spirituality is very important, especially especially in the, in the life of a survivor. But what they are referring to is the seeking of safety and control in a religion with clearly defined rules and boundaries. Sometimes a survivor will feel so much guilt, so intense, that they might feel the need to cling and reinforce practices and beliefs that might be harmful to ourselves and to others. 
And the Courage to Heal goes into deeper detail about that. That can look like imposing religion on other people in a very harmful way, whether that's emotional, mental, or physical harm. Now, the Courage to Heal also goes into detail about the the different ways that we might have escaped by any means, the, the different ways that we might have escaped from our trauma. And these are the different ways that we might have coped with it around the time of the trauma or even afterwards. And this can be physical or mental um, escape. It can be running away from home. It can be oversleeping. It can be like an over immersion or obsession with books, video games, movies, shows, um, sometimes to the point of creating an alternate reality. And this isn't the same as binging a Netflix show, which I am definitely guilty for. I don't think that's that's what they're talking about here. I think what they mean is, um, when they're talking about mental escape, is basically immersing yourself into a different reality so much so um, that you're almost uh, avoiding, avoiding having to deal with the, the trauma or the effects of the trauma and I think that this would probably be a good place to plug in the difference between distraction and avoidance. Uh, distraction is very useful in a sense where um, sometimes we do need to decompress and we do need that downtime and um, I think it's very important for us to step back and do something different and not immerse ourselves um, with a trauma or um, with um with with the overwhelming feelings and emotions that come from processing trauma i think it's very important for, to have a time and place where we do read the lighthearted books and play the video games and watch the movies and watch the shows but not to the point where it becomes avoidance um where we just we, we kind of tuck it under a rug with the intent of forgetting it um that's different the other thing that the Courage to Heal goes over is addictions, compulsions, and self-destructive behavior. And I thought that this was um, a good spot to uh, discuss with Jeanette. And here she is again in just a second. Okay, so I guess what my question is, uh, is like how, how do those behaviors, I guess, how do those coping mechanisms or behaviors begin um and i guess where does it come from and um is it because that they're usually attached to other personal beliefs um i, I guess it how do we explain this to someone who doesn't understand or doesn't know anything about trauma um it, to the to the very naive question of why would anyone do that to themselves if it harms themselves this is actually the most one of the most common things that happens um not necessarily the compulsions um but the addictions um there's like a lot of i want to say self-medication that occurs um a lot of people who have a trauma um may or people that have traumas may or may not come from stigmatized ideas of mental health and mental health practices um and so seeking medical help or for like mental health is taboo is something they don't do uh i mean it's for example in my culture because i'm latinx to suggest going to a psychologist growing up was 
sort of a, a huge insult that something was really, really wrong and nothing was wrong. Or it's something that's dangerous for a community. Uh, for example, undocumented communities get really, really nervous um, for going to seek out help. So a lot of the time, without understanding what the, they're actually going through or their experiences is, when you're having, when you're trying to avoid something and it's just kind of coming up, right? You're hypervigilant, you're checking all the doors, you're really, really worried. Um, all of a sudden, like, you're having all these thoughts about it and you just don't want to think about it or you're starting to feel super sad, the world's not a safe place. Like, all of these things happen uh, differently um, to people who have gone through a trauma. And many times, people who want to forget about their problems will take medications to help them forget about those problems. Medic by medications, I mean substances. And by substances, I mean, I'm just going to have a beer, uh, a glass of wine. Uh, let's have some shots, right? Like, and people start consuming alcohol, for example, which is very harmful to your liver and to your prefrontal cortex functions. In other words, like drinking and driving, super dangerous. Um, and people start doing all of or consuming these things, right? It could be marijuana um, to relax because they have such muscle tension for being stressed out from this uh, event that occurred, this trauma that happened. Um, it could be, um, I've, I've, I mean, there are some people I've heard of, what's it called? Like people having really, really bad nightmares. So they don't want to sleep. So they take stimulants um, or something to keep them awake in order for them not to feel that way uh, or to, to sleep. And then people that want to feel happy or better about themselves will take, um, what's it called? Um, like other substances that are give you that, um, that release or like make you feel good, like heroin um, or pain medications or like Molly and stuff like that. So they'll do those things in order to stop feeling the bad feelings or to avoid thinking about those horrible things. Um, compulsions can be like checking the door 50 times because you're so worried that someone's going to break in because someone may have broken in before. Um, it is um, making sure everything is perfect because if it's not, then all of a sudden you are might be at risk. Like that's sort of like that where that comes from. And the self-destructive behavior comes a lot of the time from um, when I see self-destructive behavior, I think self-injury. I think, um, ad again, addictions and making bad yeah. choices that endangers your, your safety. Um, or not, I don't want to say bad choices. Making choices that endangers your safety, um, such as cutting yourself, um, maybe a suicidal ideation. Maybe it's getting really drunk and driving a car because you might be having thoughts of hurting yourself or not existing on, on the planet anymore. And that's really, really sad. Um, and that's because of those really, really negative thoughts that are happening because the world's no longer safe, because of this horrible thing that happened. And uh, self-destructive behavior is really common in, um, actually, all of these things are really common in people who have had a trauma, um, especially in their childhood. Um, so, yeah. I like hearing it from your point of view and from like what you study and your and your perspective because 
you're, you're way much more articulate about this stuff. This is more of the academic part of the podcast because um, the first step to anything, right? The 12 step program, anything is to acknowledge where they're coming from. And in order to do that, it, it takes a lot of trying to understand why people or why we might uh, choose one path over another. Mm-hmm. And again, that was just the discussion I had with Jeanette about addictions, compulsions, and self-destructive behaviors um, just in general. And just to go over those different subtopics of, of that particular subject, um, the Courage to Heal mentions um, addiction, sexual addiction, anorexia and bulimia, compulsive eating, excessive busyness or workaholism, and stealing. Now, there was a website that I did look up called raace.org, and they talked about revictimization. They also included all the different things that we talked about earlier, but I wanted to bring up revictimization because it was something that confused me and it was something that I felt comfortable talking about with Jeanette as well. Um, the 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 idea behind revictimization, the theory behind revictimization, or what revictimization is, the survivor finding themselves in a abusive or dangerous situations or relationships, and the statistic that they share is that women who are sexually assaulted before eighteen years old are twice as much likely to report rape. Oh my god, girl! When I like recorded this the first time, the revictimization part. I just, I was stuttering and I was pausing for like hours on end because I could not wrap my head around this. I can kind of see why it would happen. Um, but have you guys encountered that in anything that you've read? Um, uh, anything about revictimization? What does, what does revictimization mean? What does it look like? And um, I guess, uh, why does it happen? Do you know who's the most at risk? for uh, potentially being uh, sexually assaulted or raped? I don't, I don't think so. So um, the, peop- the individuals who are most likely to be sexually assaulted or raped are, is someone who's already been sexually assaulted or raped. Um, Why, though? One of the theories, right? I'm not going to say this, the reason, right? Because there's, so, yeah, yeah. there's so many things that could be, right? Um, so, right. So one of the uh, ideas behind that is that when we have had our boundaries so severely and horribly crossed you know and like to the point especially where we don't a lot of the times people lose their sense of boundary and has a really really difficult time reestablishing those boundaries and it takes a really long time and so much work to establish boundaries to begin with and and that's not like that's taken into account like culture like is there a culture of guilt within your cultural context or maybe your religion which technically is considered culture but is your religion kind of emphasizing guilt right um and stuff like that does your family guilt you like i i knew i had someone in my life that their family would be like i gave birth to you how dare you not buy me a snack oh at the gosh. at the store and so they had a lot of guilt and had a lot of difficulties <laughs> establishing boundaries cuz that makes sense yeah. i cannot name who that human is but it broke my heart <laughs> um 
And so, so a lot of the time, just having difficulty establishing boundaries to begin with, having someone violate all boundaries then leaves a person not understanding what boundaries are supposed to exist and how to establish them properly. Um, and that's why they become and this that's why predators sadly predators can i guess sense it i don't know if they sense it or not but it becomes easier to attack someone uh, or sexually assault someone who has very little to no established boundaries um and so that's part of the reason that this they find a lot of individuals who have survived sexual trauma find themselves in this um, situation again and it's and it's not just saying like no just say no like it doesn't work that way it's it's really understanding what you want as well and the worst part about that is during this work life doesn't stop you're still living with your family, interacting with that family or that culture or that religion that instills those beliefs of guilt and stuff and, and not stable boundaries. And so, and then on top of that, dealing with the process or the pain of what had happened to you, and then someone can easily come in and take advantage, which is why I think it's so important to go and try to find help and try to find yourself and see what you are comfortable with um, with people that you are safe with and comfortable with I think that is so vital to the healing process and to help you not become re-victimized not saying that it's your fault I'm saying that there is a way to get through it but it's very difficult and it's a very long process I don't know if that oh, helps. That that helps a ton. And I think that's I think it's really important. I'm really glad you that glad that you said that it's not as easy as as uh, as people would think. It's not it's not just about learning to say no. It's learning about what it means to truly say and mean yes. What does it mean? What does consent mean to me and what are my boundaries and what am I comfortable with and what does uncomfortable look like? And what does, I, I guess, if that makes sense. Oh, girl, you make total sense. I love you. And with all of that, I just want to remind you that this is just a time to acknowledge and take account of the things that you've had to do up until now. Remember that there are some things here that you might discover from time to time later on in your journey and it's going to be okay you're gonna have to probably reprocess this at different stages of of of, of your path and i think that it's very much important to um, acknowledge acknowledge what had happened acknowledge how you feel and then find a way to process that. I highly recommend therapy once again. Um, I can't stress that enough. I, I, I think that it's really important to mention in, or actually include in this, in this episode about you know, uh, 
the importance of finding a therapist or a counselor and what does what does the right one look like? Because I, I think there are a lot of us who kind of live in that culture who will live with that with that um, with that myth that you know you only need to be in crisis to find professional help, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's true. No, um, no, get I- checked up for your brain, <laughs> just like you get checked up for your body. <laughs> it is so important. Yes, absolutely. Girl, I found like, I, I finally found like online therapy and Yay. it was like the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. And I'm so glad that you recommended it because um, it's making this so much easier. It's making, it, I mean, obviously it's not, it's not quote unquote easy, like, okay, you just do this and it's going to get better, but, um, it helps, it helps to go through everything that goes along in the head when, when processing through all of this. Okay. So I guess in your words, um, if someone were to ask you, um, what does the right therapist look like or where do I even begin? What would you tell them? Uh, it depends where they live. It depends who they are. It depends where they come from. It depends what county, what state, the country. So many factors. Um, and I totally get how it's really nerve-wracking to find a therapist. Um, the thing is, it like, for example, I live in Santa Clara County. And Santa Clara County is amazing if you have Medi-Cal. Um, for providing mental health services, in which case you, there is like a huge long list that is provided so people can seek it with who have our low income and they don't get charged a penny, which is amazing. Um, so we're really lucky here in this in Santa Clara County. Um, so I can't really speak out to more counties because I haven't been able <laughs> since I'm in graduate mm-hmm. school and I'm kind of stuck here. Um to really go out and explore Um, right now what I do have knowledge about is that there is currently online options to find a therapist especially right now during the uh, COVID-19 where seeing someone face-to-face is not safe uh, or healthy and um, finding someone online is currently our best sort of source Um, I know betterhelp.com is uh, apparently a pretty good site to find clinicians. If you are part of a university, um, most universities have some sort of system uh, for providing you with a therapist um, and things like that. Um, That being said, if you are looking for a private therapist and you have the funds to afford it, you have so many options. You can, (laughs) oh yeah, like there's so many of those. so many more. And you can um, just like do a Google search in your area for a good clinician. Um, Now finding the right therapist looks different for everybody. Kind of like finding the right doctor, right? Um, People have preferences and like their doctors, sometimes they don't. Same with their dentist. Sometimes it's like, oh, that dentist was like weird, but this one's cool. Same with your therapist. Like we're human. Like it's, it, we, we exist. It's my, my personality might not get along with your personality. Um, my, I'm gonna do my damn best to make sure I can do whatever I can. And most therapists will do that too. Um, that being said, you need to know what's important for you and what you want and make clear to your therapist that you're trying to like talk to, or they're assessing you, um, what you need and what 
what will help? Um, if you don't know, make sure you tell them that. Uh, for example, for me, finding a right therapist is finding, because I'm in grad school and because I'm very aware of these things, of a lot of things in the psychological world, because um, <laughs> I have my own therapist too. I love, absolutely love having my own therapist because I feel like I need it because um, I have a lot of struggles um, as a woman of color in higher academia. Um, and so I knew when I was looking for a therapist, I needed a person of color who has gone through higher academia um, because I know that certain experiences of mine were very unique and I didn't want to feel devalidated by another person. So um, make sure you're not educating your therapist on your experiences um, is something also I would like to make to clarify and you can ask about that. Um, if they have experience with trauma and you're looking for a trauma therapist, perfect. But if you're looking, for example, for me, someone who focuses on intergenerational trauma, focuses on uh, people's experiences culturally and being of color, like I was looking for a very different thing. Um, and I had to make sure that my therapist understood that. Um, mm -hmm. Like some indigenous people will refuse a white therapist because they tend sometimes they just don't understand the indigenous experience um again if you have the funds you can get whatever whoever you want but if you don't <laughs> then go to your uh county website behavioral health if they have it or um if you're a veteran go to the va good i'm sorry for the institutional horrors um of administration <laughs> that you may have yeah. to deal with um i know some veterans would prefer to just go private um, if they have the funds for it. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of different sources. What happens if like you, you find a therapist and you think it's the right fit, but then when you finally have these appointments, you're like, oh crap, this is not the right person for me. What do you do? Mm, well, two things. If you had the first impression that they were going to be great, and then all of a sudden, now that you start the work, they're like, ooh, I'm wondering if it's really the therapist or is the fact that you're doing work. <laughs> um, that's a good question that's that's like a big like um is this avoidance I don't know kind of like when you're like oh I want to take this class this professor was great when I talked to them you take the class like I hate this professor they suck um is it the I don't <laughs> yeah 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 that that definitely happens um, um so but I guess I say say they just don't click like, um, I think that they're willing to do the work, but they, they just don't click. I think the, the bigger, um, if they just don't click, like your therapist has no right to get mad. First of all, don't <laughs> ever worry about your therapist. I mean, worry about being a decent human being and not like threatening your therapist, but like <laughs> for the love of God, please don't threaten us. We're just trying our best here. But like, just remember that we are professionals and like, I, I did have a situation where I was uh, subbing for a clinician of color, but they didn't speak Spanish. And for this client whose family spoke Spanish, but the client was bilingual, but the client's family or parents preferred to have me because I can do parent education um, mm -hmm. with them. And I actually talked to the clinician and we both came to an understanding like there's no hard feelings what's most important is the well-being of the client so if you come up to with us and you tell us like hey 
I don't, I just don't feel it working with you. I'm going to go find a different therapist or could you recommend me or refer me to someone else? I mean, mm-hmm. instinctually we'll be like, well, let's process. Why do you want to, we'll, we'll ha- like, we just like have to naturally do that. And then like, then yes, like we'll help you, but it's way better than getting ghosted. Like, ain't no one like getting ghosted, <laughs> not relationships. Your therapist doesn't want to get ghosted. We want to know if you're okay. So please don't ghost us. <laughs> just let us know that it's not working and that's like the sweetest thing you could do and we'll have like a goodbye session uh process what's happening and then send you off to someone else or even just have a um for example in my clinic we have something called a warm handoff which is like a session where the first clinicians are the second clinicians are and then the the, um uh, client is there too so it's like kind of talking about everything kind of like handing it off kind of handing you off to you know like when your parents say goodbye go off to college <laughs> kind of a thing. Um, same thing here so because yeah. like I, I mean we don't always stick around either um some like my therapist left me because she got pregnant and was had to give birth and i totally understand because i mean she has a human coming out of her i'm not going to stop that from happening um <laughs> So I have a new therapist that she handed me off to, and I absolutely adore. So it's that's okay. awesome. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I went on a ramble again. Uh, no, I love these rambles. You can just ramble as long as you want. Um, and, and I think that those are very important things to know too, because I think those are scenarios where people will get into, and they just. I could picture myself getting into that scenario and be like, "Oh crap! I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do." Like maybe they'll feel stuck in that situation, or they don't know how to handle it, and so. Like you said, uh, not to ghost the therapist, but to be open about what your needs are. And I, I think that's also that's also something that might be difficult for a lot of people. Is it just is. Being open about what they need. Oh, yeah. I've been ghosted. Um, it sucks. That's why I say don't ghost people. Sucks. Don't ghost your therapist. It's, I've been ghosted. It's so awful. It's like, oh, just let me know so that I can not think about it constantly. Well, I think... You just... Well, <laughs> That and uh, a big concern is always safety. We're always worried about your safety. So if you oh disappear, we're worried about you being alive um, <laughs> because it like falls oh on goodness. us too if we're not making sure. Like say you were suicidal and then all of a sudden you stop showing up. All of a sudden we're like, holy crap, did they kill themselves? Like, Because I'm the only person they told that they wanted to kill themselves. So that means I'm probably going to call the police to do a welfare check and just knock on the door, see if you're alive. Um, kind of a thing. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So that's the. That's scary. Yeah. That's the bigger. That's like a big concern for therapists. So that's why I say don't ghost us. We worry. We actually really care about you guys. Like I will like just randomly be throughout my day and be like, oh, yeah, my clients said they like this. Like, oh, maybe I'll try it. Like, um, <laughs> it's just it's not supposed to happen, but it does because we're human. Um, now, I don't talk about my clients <laughs> to like anyone I know. I just say like my experiences have been because confidentiality and we will keep your secrets to our graves. So that's. That's wonderful. That's oh, awesome. Yeah. Well, this is this is why it's important to find the right help. Yeah. For if, all of these reasons. Yeah. If your therapist starts talking about you to other humans, like you could like tell on them and they'll lose their license. 
like for real like it's 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 really about losing your license to practice therapy like you are like everything is client first like if your therapist really messes up um and i mean like tells your family members about something super private that they had no consent or no release to uh consent to release from you then yeah mm-hmm. um unless of course you're a minor or unless you're suicidal in which case we're allowed to make that exception or if you're homicidal and you said you wanted to kill somebody and you have a plan to kill them then we have total authority um to tell the person that you plan to harm that you're gonna harm them and call the police right that is the right. other and exception I, right and i think that's like i think every every person that i've met in counseling has like indicated that in the beginning like hey everything here is confidential it's only going to be between me and you and the only time where I will have to be put in a a position where I'll I'll have to tell um, someone else is if you are at risk of hurting yourself or others and Mm -hmm. I mean it's abundantly clear and it should be clear in the beginning and it's if if your therapist doesn't say that the first like as the first thing they tell you other than Red hi, yeah, then they might not be a therapist. That means get the hell out of that office. Um, but with all of that and listening to all of these things, because it is a really heavy episode, um, I would take a moment with yourself or rather you should take a moment with yourself to go on a full solo date. So definitely have your favorite meal have a warm relaxing bath drive somewhere with a large expansive view have a walk outside and um, do some self-regulation techniques Uh, there's deep breathing there's meditation there's mindfulness exercises yoga instead of beating yourself up for the things you've had to do realize that you have survived and that you've needed to do these things to survive. And so, while many and almost all of these are what they call maladaptive behaviors um, that come after trauma, be patient with yourself because your mind and your body did what it knew how to do at the time with the resources that it had. And today is a different day, tomorrow's going to be a different day. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and include just a snippet of um, me and Jeanette talking about mindfulness and the different ways um, of self-care and kind of what our favorite self-care activities are. Okay, so we (laughs) had this conversation the last phone call. Remember, we were talking about what self-care is and the difference between self-care and what self-regulation is. And I thought that was interesting, and I brought that up with my therapist. But in your own words, what is the difference between self-care and self-regulation? Okay, so self-care, what self-care is, it's not like hashtag treat yourself. It's not hashtag treat yourself. Please don't think that that's self-care because that could be damaging. Um, um, self-care what that looks like is taking care of your body taking care of your brain and doing things that are healthy and promote your health that can be exercise that can be eating healthier meals that means going to bed um, at a, a decent hour for your schedule that means that you're getting a full night's rest or days rest, depending if you work night shifts, right? Um, That means, um, like, 
if you know something is going to bother you, that means uh, making sure that uh, making sure you prevent that. For example, if it bothers you to see the sink full of dishes, like self-care part of it can be doing all the dishes. So like self-care is managing yourself and taking care of yourself like you would take care of a child, like you would take care of an elderly person that you care about, stuff like that. Um, can also be just like giving yourself a little treat and being kind to yourself. Um, so it's kind of like living, right? Self-regulation is different um, because self-regulation is for when you're dysregulated. Um, when you're dysregulated, that might mean you're disassociating. That might mean you're on panic mode or you might be having a panic attack, That which can look uh, differently for people. But generally, it's your heart's beating so fast that it's scaring you and you think you might be having a heart attack. It means you're hyperventilating. It means that um, uh, you sometimes you have shortness of breath or you feel like you can't breathe. So all of the, so panic, right? Or you're so worried. You're like, your head is everywhere. You're like worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. What's going to happen for dinner? What's going to happen later? I can't believe I said that for that conversation. Does that mean I'm going to get fired? Oh my God. Like, uh, I didn't finish my homework. I'm going to get an F. I'm going to fail school. I'm going to, I'm not going to do well. I'm going to die. Oh my God. So that's being dysregulated, which I'm sure. I'm chuckling because that literally just happened to me yesterday. <laughs> it's. I'm not, I'm not chuckling because it's funny. I'm chuckling because it's a sad truth. <laughs> and this, and it happens. Uh, People are not always regulated. Not everything is consistently regulated, right? We're human. We, there are traumas that happen. There are events that take place such as like COVID-19 that cause a lot of stress and make it cause you to dysregulate because it's disrupting your life. It's disrupting how you take care of yourself and all this stuff. Right? So to self-regulate is to be able to do things to bring you back to what's happening in this present moment and no longer have or be as dysregulated as like, for example, having all those anxious thoughts or, for example, um, having that panic attack or um, what was the other thing I said? I lost my train of thought. I just know anxiety talks about anxieties and panic attacks. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it's sort of bringing you back to, to base, I like to say, bringing you back to center. And for example, um, for the panic attack, one of my favorite exercises is a mindfulness exercise called the five senses technique, um, which is where you list to yourself five things you see, four things you feel, three things you hear, two things you smell, and one thing you taste. Because uh, it gets a little harder and harder and harder. Um, but if you really focus in on something like that, that can regulate you. Um, you can use music to self-regulate. I know, Joanna, you are obsessed with music, you audiophile. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and like one of the ways to self-regulate with music um, is to put, for example, a song you've never heard before. Uh, or maybe an instrumental song instead of one with words or even one with words. If it's your favorite, whatever, it's fine, too. Um, this works a lot better with teenagers who are into music, which is most teenagers, let's be real. Um, and it's really like listening to the music and like identifying what instruments you hear, uh, figuring out the tone, 
and just really listening to the song and be like feeling almost like part of that song, like in order to stop thinking and panicking about things that are irrelevant to this moment right here, right now. Um, so a lot of the time, mindfulness practices um, are more often than not self-regulation. Mindfully eating, mindfully drinking water. Actually, uh, drinking water actually helps your whole body um, relax. That's why a lot of the time when someone is uh, like, uh, <laughs> I got pulled over one time and I had a panic attack in front of the cop which was super embarrassing. And like, like, oh my God, it was embarrassing. He kept it going. And he gave me his water and um, that really helped like wow. stop my panic attack in that moment. Cause I was just like, I can't have you call a paramedic right now, even though I feel like I'm gonna die cause I can't afford it. <laughs> this happened years I, ago, mind you. Um, oh my gosh. I, well, I'm so sorry that happened, but also <laughs> I think it's really amazing how the different things that we do with our bodies, like literally have almost a direct um, effect on how, how, how we mentally, I guess, uh, how have a direct, direct effect on our mental well-being. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really good example. Yeah, exactly. And again, the water, just physically drinking water, like immediately slows down your fight or flight. And what self-regulation is, is stopping your fight or flight from taking place and bringing you back to normal. Okay. Uh, okay. I, I do remember this in one of the webinars that they had um, in my online therapy program thing. They were talking about like this window. Uh, I forgot what the window was called, but it was this happy window where um, we're regulated. We're able to creatively think we're able to function normally. Um, and then if we, went outside of that window, we were either hyper or hypo something. And um, basically the goal was to go back into that, into that window mm -hmm. of where we best function. And so that's, that's what self-regulation is, 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 is going back into that window. Yes. That's beautifully okay. said. Good job. Okay. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I learned something. Yay. Okay. So <laughs> what are your favorite self-care things then? Self-care or self? Oh, you have the regulation there too. Okay. Self-care. Mm -hmm. um, exercise. That's such good self-care. Oh my gosh. <laughs> self, like exercise is the best self-care, right? Exercise is in like, I, I live in the Bay, so I love hiking. I can't do it right now because of COVID-19. Break my heart. But it's amazing. And that's a great self-care. Uh, physical health. It like really... I it's almost it's like spiritual for me as well because I feel very one with nature so that's something to help my body and help my spirit um, so that's self-care for me another favorite self-care thing is dancing bachata dancing or latin dancing yes. um, because that's also physical activity um, it's a social activity because remember being social is part of the human experience and very important um, I also get in touch with my sensuality, um, which is, I think something is often neglected by humans, um, in very mm, sex negative cultures. So I really enjoy that because I get in touch with that a little bit without, you know, um, actually having sex, uh, with other humans that I'm not necessarily <laughs> interested in. Um, 
but yeah, I think it that helped. That's my personal favorite. Just full self disclosure. Totally not being professional right now. Whatever. <laughs> um, and also, self care can be cooking, creating sustenance for yourself and your family um, by make and like knowing what you're in, adding into the ingredients. Like when I make spaghetti, it's super healthy. I have a ton of vegetables in there, chopped up really tiny because my husband hates vegetables and he can't. If he can't see it, it's fine. <laughs> and making sure there's no added sugars in it. So I know my husband is so cute. Uh, he's a child. I'm so, apparently I married a child, a 28 year old child. Anyway, <laughs> I love him to, to pieces. Um, yeah, and it's like, like so. Those are like some really good self care stuff um, for some people. It, like I know I have a friend in my cohort whose self-care regimen is taking baths like she takes Epsom salt baths to really relax her body after a very stressful day and that's her self-care um, and that's totally cool um, what's your favorite I self-care think, oh okay so it's interesting that you mentioned all these things because um, for the longest time I think I want to say five four years ago um, when I started running and I started really exercising, just, just because I enjoyed it, like hiking and running, I didn't, it, it made such a huge impact um, during a very stressful time. Um, I think I was, I think I was almost done with nursing school and there was so much pressure in finishing and um, exercising made a huge impact. And this is coming from someone who grew up not like having to run away from PT class. Like <laughs> you were there. Oh my gosh. I wasn't, in, your, I wasn't in high school with you, girl. I was in elementary no, 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 with no. you. I, no, no, no. Elementary school. Now I'm thinking about it. In elementary school, I would run away from, from PT class. Like whenever we would have the full mile run, there was, I think me and Stephanie ran away and hid from PT class. Really? We were such delinquents. Okay. I would have joined you. Why didn't you tell me? I hated PE in elementary school. Yes. So the point is that as someone who absolutely hated physical activity. (laughs) Dude, I was a fat kid. I hated it too. Like I was a slow runner. Okay. You were? Yeah, dude. I was chunky. I was adorably chunky. Okay. Actually. You were so... You were so cute. You are adorable now. You were adorable then. Nothing has changed. Except now um, I I find fun ways to exercise because I freaking hate running. Um, but I hate I hate being told to run. That's the thing. Oh, there you like go. I, I I hate when someone tells me to exercise. I'm like, no, no, I don't want to. And then you just despite them. You just don't. And yet I joined the military. What happened there? I don't know. Uh, I, I could go through a long ass explanation about that, but you're, be still entire, the, you're still in the military. I know that'll be a, a, a complete different, like, like a, a, an entire episode of its own. Um, but yeah, no, I love, I love, 
I love running and I miss hiking so much. Oh my gosh, we don't have that many like hiking spots out here, but well, I'm gonna totally feel your pain on that one. What I've been doing during a quarantine is I've just been like putting on my mask and going on long ass walks with my um Fitbit thing on. So I make sure to hit like 12,000 steps a day. Um, yeah. So that's something I've been doing currently that I enjoy. And then I like... I, I like try to self-regulate while I'm self-caring. <laughs> okay, I don't self-regulate because I'm not like distressed. But I um will try to do this um the walking and stuff mindfully and which is again related to self-regulation. It's not self-regulation, but it could be if I were oh, it has been. I was one time super distressed after uh freaking hor uh, don't I really don't like grad school. Um, so I was <laughs> crying. I was super upset because I had a horrible meeting. And I and this was during a quarantine. And I just went to my uh, Carlos. And I was just like, I don't know why I did this to myself. Oh. And like, so then I went for a walk and I did it to self-regulate. Um, but because I was doing it very mindfully. Um, and I was just looking for things in my neighborhood. Like, um, uh, I found a beautiful... Uh, mailbox I found a house that I would take over during a zombie apocalypse trying to check out all their weak spots didn't have any perfect I realized that they're old people easy targets no I'm kidding I won't actually attack people it's okay <laughs> humans we're good oh, yeah so I'm doing stuff like that hello okay <laughs> that's that's an awesome example of self-regulation versus <laughs> self-care. Look at go for a walk in your neighborhood and see which house would be zombie-proof the most. I think. Hell yeah, man! <laughs> That's my Super style. Efficient. I love it. I love it. Um, oh, another thing that I didn't realize that had helped me, like growing up, um, was probably singing at church. Just the act of singing. It, I didn't realize it until now, but. That in itself was a, a huge, huge exercise in mindfulness because I had to be aware of what I was doing and how it felt at the moment right then and there. And I think that's why I was so attached to singing and music um, Yeah, at the time. Oh, yeah. Actually, one of the mindful – one of the things that I've learned works best um, when I'm talking or with my clients about mindfulness is finding things that they enjoy – and make having them turn it into a mindfulness practice, right? Mm -hmm. Like I have a, I've had a client um, that it really enjoys art, and so we've turned that into their mindfulness activity. Same another client that really enjoys singing, um, and turned that into a mindfulness activity. Personally, I enjoy dancing, so like I turn that into my mindfulness because I'm not focused on other things when I'm dancing or when I'm moving my body. Um, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So like things can be secretly mindful and you don't realize it. Like if it's for like, if you're teaching mindfulness to children, it's like giving them a freaking maze and having that like on paper and having them solve it. Like they're so focused on it. It's crazy. And yes, and that's actually super mindful. They're being mindful of that. And that's the only thing that exists in their little world for that period of time. I think that's important to to know and to and to mention is that mindfulness isn't sitting in one place and meditating. It's not, you know, it can be, but it's not it's not always like that. You can inject mindfulness into everyday things that you do. Oh yeah. My favorite mindfulness activity is organizing coins. 
Like, this is my personal thing. Oh, my God. I will literally just love collecting, like, a giant, like, piggy bank full of coins and just, just hours, just, like, quarters into this roll, like, dime, and just <laughs> just going ham. And I love it. It's, like, my favorite. Because then at the end, I'm like, I have this much money. I'm so happy. Uh <laughs> It's it's great. I like it's tactile. You get to feel the coins. It's you can smell the the metallicness of the coins, and you're just sorting, and you're just focused on it. Oh my god! It's, it's I love it. I love it. It's therapeutic. <laughs> I think another one for me is coloring with like actual crayons. Ooh, the wax. I love the smell of crayons, girl. Yes. Oh. I don't know why, but it's gotta be Crayola. As soon as you say you coloring with crayons, I'm just like, no, girl, you like Play-Doh. <laughs> I like no I like both it's definitely both and I think that I think that Jonathan picked up on it because he bought me an entire case of like little mini play-doh tubs which is amazing I remember we had that for you here you were like freaking out over it you're like you bought it for yourself and like occasionally you just like back when we we lived together you would like open up the play-doh like smell it and just put it back It would be like a full-on deep sniff of each Play-Doh tub. Be like, ah, comfort. Oh, my God. I love you so much. (laughs) I freaking love that. I do the same thing with books, too. Like, maybe I won't, like, necessarily read a book or I'll be at the library and I'll just, like, sift through the pages and I'll smell the, I don't know. Girl, me too. the smell lead is. I don't know. Oh, me too. So (laughs) bad. I love the smell of books. Ugh. I love it. I love it. Okay, do you do the same thing too when you open a case of a game or something mm-hmm. and you like open you up the plastic wrapping? It. It, you have to sniff it. You do. It's 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 like instinctual. Yes. Oh, it's like mindfulness. The, the smell <laughs> of a new game. Well, I mean, and look look at those moments. The uh, moments you have enjoyed the most in your past have been the most mindful moments because you're so, so focused on that present moment. Which is so freaking true. crazy if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Like, were you having anxious thoughts when you opened your new Animal Crossing game? No, girl. I was sniffing the box. I put it inside the, the, the thingamabob. <laughs> it was so much fun. I am so addicted to that game. Yeah. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's great. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> your favorite uh, moments are moments that you are... Yes. Mindfulness. <laughs> okay. That was a doozy, wasn't it? I'm going to leave you with some homework assignments. I know, homework assignments, but you're not going to be graded on it. So that's a plus. Number one, find a place to write it all down. So find a place where you can safely write about this healing process. This can be a blog, but I highly suggest a private journal. Find one that you especially like that you'll be motivated to write in and write down the many different things that you've had to do up until this point. When have you used these coping mechanisms? So that was two, write it down. Three, write a letter of gratitude to yourself. You have done everything that you could in the circumstances to survive. You didn't know any other way. So I challenge you to sit down and write a letter to yourself thanking your younger self for bringing you here today. Damaged or still hurting, you are still here. You're breathing. You're alive. And that's all because you did everything you could to survive. And the fourth assignment here is 
to nourish yourself. Do a handful of things that feed your soul, your body. Have your favorite meal. Have a warm, relaxing bath. Reach out to a friend. Have a relaxing, long drive to somewhere beautiful. Do something to decompress. To not think about anything in particular. But just have a moment where your mind can be still. And lastly, if there's anything that I've missed, and if you have the time, I would highly appreciate it if you helped me out and make this the best for you. And please leave an honest comment, either through my Instagram or even on the website, www.relentlesspodcast.com. Don't forget to rate, comment, and subscribe. And until next time, thank you. Bye-bye.